Hello travelers of the fifth dimension, I'm Vienna and I'm Eri and this is That's Not Fair, a queer Twilight Zone podcast The two queers are watching through all of the Twilight Zone franchise and desperately trying to use our literature degrees for something. Yes. So, since this is our first episode that we're most certainly recording for the first first time exactly virginal podcast here. yes mm-hmm. i think it would be good for us to tell who we are and what is our connection to the twilight zone so eri who are you and what is your connection to the twilight zone and also what are your pronouns well uh, i'm eri my pronouns are he him uh, i studied english literature as you know and in my uh, thesis english? i focused on <laughs> english english literature uh in my thesis i focused on sort of mid-century american literature um mm. and so that's really my con- connection to the twilight zone through that because i was very interested in uh TV, since TV came into people's homes really only a couple of years before the Twilight Zone, or in the same decade at least, and I uh, wrote a lot about that. But um, other than that, I watched some uh, episodes in high school, but I was never like a massive fan of the Twilight Zone on its own. But uh, I know about it through sort of cultural osmosis, (laughs) obviously. What's your connection to the Twilight Zone, and who are you in general? Well, uh, I'm Vienna, uh, they, she, and um, I have never... I've always heard about the Twilight Zone, but I've never watched it before, except the 20 episodes that I watched before we... Well, I decided (laughs) that we will do this podcast, and then roped you in and you seem to be happy about being roped yes happy uh, about being roped as many people who i encounter mm. oh mm. Hmm. <laughs> but yes um before this the closest i've come to watching twilight zone has been the scary door mm. which is a fake uh, well, a fictional TV show in Futurama that we see like a minute or two of. Yeah, so it's a parody or. Yeah, it's basically yeah. a parody on homage. Mm. Homage. Oh, yeah. And uh, shouldn't have cracked my knuckles there. Can't get that out of the recording now. <laughs> Gonna be a happy editor, me. <laughs> but yes, in addition to that, I'm a writer, and next year I'm planning on writing my first full-length novel. Mm-hmm. And this show, The Twilight Twilight Zone, can't speak, uh, is very much a writer's playground kind of show, mm. or of a writer at least, since... Rod Serling wrote most of it, uh, but yeah, it's and it it has a lot of things that I like because I like um, old science fiction uh, short stories, especially from Harlan Ellison, who I know to be a very problematic person. <laughs> 
but he was a good writer. Yeah, for sure. And I also have wanted to get back to analyzing things because I used to do videos on YouTube about queer readings, but I stopped because the electricity prices in Finland did a thing. Mm, yes. Still doing a thing. Well, yes, but we thought the actual apocalypse was coming. Yeah. Turned out it didn't, but, you know, we, we figured that it might have been. <laughs> it still yeah. might, honestly, so... Um, mm. Well, let's not talk about Finland's internal... By the way, <laughs> we are from Finland. Yeah, if you didn't yes. catch that. Yes, and... Um, and, yeah, let's not talk about the electricity stuff in Finland, like... <laughs> Yeah. We'll be here all day. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the newest, hottest, hot thing, really. And, <clears throat> yeah, in this uh, podcast, we will we will give you a synopsis of each episode that we go through, but we do recommend that you watch the episodes yourself first, because our synopsis won't include everything and they might also take some artistic license as my mine will because i like writing and <laughs> i tried to make especially this week's uh, episode where is everybody a bit more interesting than it is mm. so yes that's what we are going to do and unless eri has something i guess we could start yeah, let's crack on with the first episode. Crack on indeed. Mm. Where is everybody? Where is everybody? A place with no name, with a man walking to nowhere. He arrives to a cafe, but the service is sorely lacking. In fact, no one there but himself to pour him the coffee left on the stove. Only him and his realization that he's an American. Truly, a dread realization. And um, now we have alienated our core audience, probably. So, you know. <laughs> nah. Uh, good job, us. Not at all. Mm hmm. As the bells of the town hall clock ring, he arrives in a town down the road. Streets lie empty before him, but the empty stores are open for customers. Only a lone lady in a car is to be found, but she turns out to be a bit too plastic for two-way conversation. From over yonder, a phone rings in a lone phone booth. On a town square, our man is the only one to hear it. Rudely, no one answers from the other end, only a recording as the operator. A phone book full of names, the only place where they seem to live. No one even comes to a man's aid when the phone booth locks him in. Push as he might, the riddle of the pool door refuses to open with his initial methods. No matter where he goes, there are signs that someone has been there. A lit cigar, shaving foam on a brush, but no people, his only companion, a sense of being watched. Evening comes and the lure of the arts draws him to the cinema. 
Recognizing his kinship with Rock Hudson, he realizes that he is in the Air Force, and someone is good enough to put on a film about the very thing for him. But again, no one in the projector booth. As the world tilts and starts looking a bit more Dutch, he can only run away from this unnameable dread. He looks for solace at the pedestrian crossing, pressing the button to ask for passage, or as he pleads someone to help. All the while, someone watches him. Seven pairs of eyes are on him at an Air Force base. They help him out of his isolation booth, carrying him off on a gurney. He stayed in that box for 484 hours. A delusion or two is to be expected. But next time will be for real. Next time he's going to the moon. So, <clears throat> where is everybody? Originally broadcast October 2nd, 1959. And I watched the pilot. Pilot? <laughs> One might say even the pilot yeah. version. There's some differences to the actually aired version. You watched the pilot version as well. Yes, I think we used the same source, so yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so the difference is according to the Twilight Zone companion. Uh, that the title in title uh, is in three-dimensional block letters, which was changed because it was very cliché, the 50s sci-fi style, mm. which was thought to, you know, make it not seem so good because 50s sci-fi was kind of not that great. Yeah, so Serling didn't want to be so cringe with the opening letters. Hmm, indeed. And the opening narration talks about uh, a sixth dimension, not fifth, mm. as it would be famously be known. The change was made because William uh, Shelf, also known as Bill, uh, who oversaw the Twilight Zone project, noticed that, well, he noticed that there was the mention of a sixth dimension and asked Rod Serling, what is the fifth one? A fair question, honestly. Yes, and Rod uh, just said, well, aren't there five? <laughs> and Bill Self said, N I think, I can only think of four. <laughs> so, yes, they re-recorded it and it became there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. They should have kept people guessing, honestly, and just stay with the sixth dimension. Just have everyone at home be like, huh? Hold on. Mm, maybe, but I don't know. Just uh, gaslight your audience immediately. There's five dimensions, you're crazy. I mean, this show is kind of about that gaslighting. Yeah, I mean, exactly, yeah. And a very shocking thing for anyone who has watched the Twilight Zone, is that the narrator was not Rod Serling. And the original pilot episode didn't contain his very, very iconic narration voice. Yeah. Which is much uh, emulated in other things mm. and parodied. Uh, but instead, in the pilot, it was Westbrook Van Voorhees, 
who is known for being a professional narrator for television and movies, especially from the March of Time radio and newsreel series. And um, I think his, like, not catchphrase, but, you know, like, the thing that he really got known for was time marches on or something. I don't know how he speaks, so I'm not going to try to. And there were also other people who they considered for the the role of narrator. One of which was at least Orson Welles. Right. The problem with Orson Welles was that everyone wanted him to narrate every fucking thing at that (laughs) point. He had not gotten to the French wine. No, yeah. Is it champagne? Champagne, yeah. I mean, this type of wine, I suppose. Good old champagne. Yeah. So, yes, he was very expensive at that point. So, yes, Rod Serling was basically a cost-cutting measure. (laughs) The boy was cheap. I actually relate to that so much. Just, ah, I'll just do it myself. Mm? Fuck the rest of you. I'll just, we're not paying you to do this. I'll just read the thing. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot about how I make videos and usually <laughs> do my like creative things. I'm just like, I'm only now learning that maybe, you know, I can ask people to help, for help. And yeah, instead of just doing 12 jobs by yourself. Yeah. As Rod Serling seems to be doing here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, he's not directing, I suppose. That's no. another guy, so... No, yeah. Not sure if he was ever in the director's chair. Yeah, I have no idea. I guess we'll see. Yeah. And speaking of, I have not written down who uh, directed this episode. I want to say Robert Parrish, who directed most of season one episodes, as far as I know. If you say so. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I do say so. Yeah, I very rarely care about um, directors and such. Yeah, especially here in the 50s, where I have no idea who any of these people are, actor-wise, either. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I might know a few actors but not really that many yeah but yeah yeah i relate to the whole do it all yourself like i'm i'm planning on making some zines and it's all like i've had to admit to myself that i might not be able to do everything about them maybe ask a friend for some drawing so that they aren't actual stick figures yeah. <laughs> we talked about stick figures just before this. Yeah. And where they can get you, but... Yes. Yeah. I kind of admire it, but at the same time I'm like... Yeah, that's not... N- maybe not the best way to go. But then again, they at first they tried to get someone else to do it. Yeah. For, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but the idea for the script came from two sources, at least, according to the Twilight Zone Companion. Isolation experiments on astronaut trainees and walking through an empty city set at a movie studio. Yeah. I think Rod Serling did that. And uh, it just was very haunting. 
So he decided, well, I'm gonna do write this down, mm. take my uh, writing machine, what's my call it, <laughs> typewriter, and put it down. I have um, a specific uh, analysis. Analysis. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yes. Analysis. Analysis. Yeah. Analysis. Analysis. <laughs> yes. Stress on the second one. Analysis. Yes. Uh, I have um, a few motifs. Motifs that I want to go through first, yes. and they all contribute to my master angle on mm. this episode. There's the mirrors that we see. Uh, there's a couple of scenes with mirrors, at least, where he, where the main character talks to a mirror in a mm, ice cream parlor. Yes, I think it was an ice cream place or like a old school sort of fifties diner place. Yeah, there was. What's that drink like? Malt, fifties malt. All oh, right. Not malt liquor, but yeah. like. I've always wanted to try that. I have no idea what it's. <laughs> I guess a malt shop. Hmm. I have no idea what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on Wikipedia now. So it's called a soda shop, malt shop. Oh, malted milk. Oh, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> what the fuck is malted milk? When I think of malting, I think of like... Snakes no, 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 their like skin. M A. Oh, <laughs> like that makes beer. sense. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. That still sounds gross to me. Maybe I just don't like milk. Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. Uh, okay. I never tried that, but might be interesting. But yeah, I think that what these motifs mean is that. Oh yeah, the other scene with a mirror was when he ran into a mirror yeah. at the cinema. Mm. Yeah, I think these mean that he is sort of the in this twilight zone. He is the limits of his world. So he can only talk to himself because he's the only one there. And when he tries to run out, he hits himself mm. in the mirror. That's my take on the mirrors. We'll come back to that in my analysis. Analysis. <laughs> Ana- ana- analysis. Analysis. Yes. Why can't I pronounce this word? This is a word that I've used a lot. Well, there's no other word that sounds like that. Mm. So it's all good. Yeah, it's like dialysis. <laughs> oh yeah, there for, is another one, yeah. For anal. Sort of. <laughs> Two different things. Mm. <laughs> and then there's closing doors. There's closing doors at the jail and the phone booth. So at the jail scene, we can see that jail cell door is starting to close on its own before yeah. the main character runs out. And also the phone booth where he gets stuck. Yeah, he doesn't know how to use the fucking door. Yeah, so in both cases, it's like he's locking himself in somewhere, but he thinks someone else is locking him in. Mm. Essentially, I mean, there is no one else there, so no one's locking him places. He just doesn't know how to use doors, ostensibly. Well, the in the phone booth, actually, the the door does close on its own. He yeah. looks at it for a while and 
like it's, it's more not gravity a... than anything else just like a slight breeze outside this is a metal and glass <laughs> door i don't think it's a light breeze well maybe maybe someone is a ghost closing the door sure. on him but mostly it's just him who's imagining this well yeah he's imagining it yeah. the whole thing but... yeah of course yeah but yes and the phone booth section is actually based on Serling's own real life experiences. <laughs> See, he got stuck in a phone booth uh, trying to hurry to catch a flight and he just couldn't get it open. He couldn't get it open. He tried to push as he might and just didn't didn't move and then he asked for help just shouted can anyone do this oh my god i mean he's a little guy isn't he like he's like five four he's or dead. something he's like no he will <laughs> he's even literal now but i mean he was a little guy wasn't he which is something i noticed because it tickled me for some reason that he was very short so I mean, he kind of looked short yeah i think he was like a bit taller than me which everyone's taller than me but True. just only a little bit so except one fun. of our friends yeah so that was fun for me mm. that to know that he's a short guy yeah so maybe the door's just too heavy for him <laughs> just in, in life i can relate to that just things are heavy and tall <laughs> difficult okay well i appreciate your viewpoint yeah but then a guy just came came and kicked in the door because it opened inwards, not outwards. And um, to quote uh, Rod Serling, I wanted to die. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've all been there, to be yes. honest. First, this whole whole scene about, I can't open this door. And so then, dramatic. Just yep. panicking in the phone booth. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has to rescue you. Yep. And then there's also, I think there's a few clocks, clocks around that are kind of, kind of a motif as well. And then there's, of course, eyes, mainly the op optometrist eye mm. on the optometrist window, that is. And, uh, yeah, and then, uh, of course, there are all the eyes that are looking at him because he's actually in an isolation booth and yeah. they're looking at his every move. So here, here we have the main motifs. Mirrors, closing doors, clocks maybe, <laughs> and eyes. Yeah. So what did I make out of this? What is my master take of this episode? Lay it on me. Well, when he goes to the cinema, he notices that there's a Rock Hudson movie on yeah and uh it's i don't actually i didn't write it down which movie it is i'm guessing that it's a real actual movie yeah me neither but i suppose so because that's a real guy yeah and rock hudson i believe uh it was rumored that he was uh, how you say a friend of dorothy oh yes really indeed and he in fact was Oh, of so it was rumored and because it was true <laughs> yes uh, he had the classic situation in Hollywood of just having you know a male roommate ah, with whom yes, he of course. lived and spent time with and had baths with and yeah 
slept one in bed in the apartment. Wore each other's clothes or none at all. Yeah, no, that's normal. Yep. But anyway, the main character recognizes some of himself in the Rock Hudson poster. Mm. And the, the explicit version, not that kind of explicit, <laughs> uh, is that he, let's say overt version, mm. is that he recognizes, oh, I'm in the Air Force because I have the same kind of uniform. Yeah, the jumpsuit, yeah. But what if, because he's all alone and the only company he really has is what his mind can conjure up, the only thing that he can do in this being alone with himself is to confront himself in some way. Maybe not directly, but in some way. And the thing that he must confront in himself is that he is gay. Ah. And, uh, for example, we consider the mirrors. He is basically confronting himself in that, and he hits himself in that when he hits the mirror. Yeah. Mm. It's something that he does not want to confront, but he must. Mm. It's hard confronting yourself, isn't it? Simulation or not. Mm-hmm. And there's also the eyes. And the actual eyes that are looking at him are the army officers and generals and what have you. I know how to pronounce general. I just, you know, <laughs> sometimes I like to pronounce words funny. Just for our listeners, I know how to pronounce words. <laughs> Don't at me. You know, just analysis. Yeah. Analysis. Exactly. Analysis. That's just, I, you know, I, I can pronounce word. I, I, I'm good at English. Jeez. <laughs> Jeezum. Uh, but yes, because he's looked at by these army, army people and generals, and he knows this. He's on some level, even though he's in his delusions. It kind of reminds me of how there's a atmosphere of constant surveillance in regards to sexuality in the army. All right. No, well, the air force in this case, but mm. you know whatever. So that's also like it's present this kind of um, in his delusions. That he is just being looked at constantly, and he's he has something to hide in a way. Yeah. And uh, also, this loneliness could be connected to it, and um, because there's no one like him around, mm. or I mean, he feels no like, one around. Yeah. Yeah. He feels like there's no one around, no mm. one like him around, but he's still being looked at. Yeah. So that could. We could draw some parallels to the gay experience in the late 50s. Mm. Oh, for sure. I mean, he doesn't even know who he is, really, but there's still this, you know... Um, do, do any of us really know? <laughs> no, not really, no. I don't know yes. who does. But still, there's... I love how the first instinct is to figure out who he is rather than where he is and what's happening. Mm. Um, and the only thing he really knows is that he's alone, he doesn't know who he is, and that someone's stalking him, essentially. Mm. But the uh, identity is the most important for him to figure out, which is interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I'd try to figure that out first, or 
where I am first. Mm. No idea. But yeah, we could also relate to this gay theory, as I call it. Mm. Um, queer reading, one might actually call it. <laughs> the the f- feeling of being closed in by the phone booth and uh, mm. prison cell, of being gay and potentially the punishment for being gay and also the feeling of always being uh, under threat. Mm. Well, the ending, we can look at it like he comes out of his, I don't know, his psychosexual uh, delusion, (laughs) right? I'm not sure. But anyhow, his revelatory delusions, if we take it as being an exploration, in a way, into his gay identity that he's... Well, not gay identity, but gayness, queerness, uh, that he's trying to hide even from himself. Or we can take the ending as an extension of this, because he's going to fly a phallic object at the moon. (laughs) Ah, yes. Yes. As in, to moon at someone, showing your (laughs) derriere to someone. Beautiful wordplay. I'm actually obsessed with that. Indeed. (laughs) This is why I started making those videos. Yeah, exactly. Something in your sort of literature degree mind is screaming out to analyze things Mm. in a a phallic way, especially. Indeed. (laughs) Um, But yes, uh, that was my main main, um, thesis about the episode. Uh, So what did you think about the episode? I thought about identity as well, but more American identity. Because that's really the first thing he finds out about himself, which I found interesting. Because he finds some money in his pocket. Mm. He goes, oh, I got American money, so I have to be American. So he doesn't know who he is, but he knows what dollars are in this world. Uh, And he seems very happy about that that he's an American person, or rather he just seems happy that he knows something about himself, which it has to be something he knows on another level even before he finds the money because he barges into this cafe demanding service immediately, screaming (laughs) about ham and eggs Mm -hmm. and coffee, (laughs) jumping up behind the counter to find somebody to yell at. So on some level, (laughs) he must already know. Uh, where he's from, um, but with the money, he seems yeah, assured. And I, I feel like there's a classic case of uh, fictional amnesia. I'm not, I don't remember how amnesia in real life works. Mm. I know that there's a couple of different kinds, like that you can't make short-term memories anymore, or or that you have lost your short-term memories, or that you have lost or can't create any more long-term memories. Yeah, I think maybe there's different kinds. Yeah, yeah. but um, this seems to be the classic uh, kind that we see in fiction a lot, where you have forgotten your identity, but you have all your skills. Yeah. So you just don't, you don't remember what your skills are, but you do, when the situation comes up, you mm. remember how to use them, but you just don't know who you are. Yeah. So in this case, you know what language you speak. You kind of know how to walk and talk and do things, but mm. who you are is completely yeah uh, lost. Yeah. 
and also we have to again point to our finishness here because <laughs> the behavior that he exhibits at the cafe when he uh, tries to shout at the that at the at non-existent <laughs> yes yeah. the non-existent server would be considered rather uncouth yeah to say it mildly in Finland we we um we are kind of a private people I think there's some change in that like uh the younger generation mm. and also you know rich people who are used to getting all the things for fucking nothing yeah for sure um <laughs> Uh, they are a whole different thing. But generally, we find it a bit awkward to make demands. Yeah, I think it would take me at least 15 minutes longer to realize that I was the last person on Earth. Because I just would not start looking for people, necessarily. I would just assume, oh, they're on their break. I'll just wait for them to come mm-hmm. back Yeah, here nicely and, and calmly. Yeah, and in a couple of places that I go to, like one ethnic market and um, corner shop that's uh, next to my place, hmm. there's now a bell that you can ring. Oh no! When someone, if it's horrible, it's like the, a child prince. Ding ding. Yeah, and well, and I have only recently. No, actually, I really haven't... I still feel bad when I use it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I do use it, but I always feel bad because, like, <laughs> I don't want to rush you. You get something to do, like, I'm yeah, okay. Genuinely, it's like, I'm sorry I've summoned you because of my chips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just here to buy tea, uh, tea and lentils. It's not that yeah. important. <laughs> it's fine. You're here. You're working. Like, see, yeah, what am I doing? Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, I think the mentality, I don't think this is the mentality of all Finns, but I think there's a certain difference that we think like, oh, you work here, like you are doing something here. You, you are doing something important. I'm just here to, you know, get something from here. So unless we are really busy, it's not like... Or in a hurry. Maybe that's another aspect. Not only is this guy in this story American, and that's the difference, but he is also, like, a white guy in his 30s who's <laughs> used to demanding things and getting them. Yeah. Like ham and eggs and coffee and ice cream. Yeah. And later he just goes... Well, I guess it's understandable when he's at the malt shop or yeah. soda shop. Uh, he uh, he just goes straight in and gets the ice cream himself. Yeah. But then it's kind of understandable because yeah, he's no, all he, he already realizes, knows. Yeah. yeah. There's no one there. But yeah. But he at least leaves some. Um, he actually leaves money for what he took. Yeah, at the I mean that's nice. Initial price. But yeah, well, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> I'm I'm just. He seems kind of an ass, and that's it. In that bit. scene, like as a fan, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to see him. Like actually, like, well, he doesn't seem. He actually doesn't seem like. He doesn't seem angry, so I'm not sure he might be like. Pretty nice with uh, actual, 
like customer service people because he doesn't go straight to like yeah he demands things but he doesn't go like it is my um, sovereign right as a citizen or a citizen yeah, of fair. the United seems, States of America. He's just more concerned that there's nobody there. Like he sort of starts looking for them in in a way that's not demanding but Yeah and I'm not sure panicked. if he's like concerned. It's more like Oh well, there's no one here. Like I'll just take it myself. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's just like, I don't know. He's taking it in strides. Yeah. I feel like he's just like, yeah, I'm gonna just take it then. Maybe it's not panic about the world ending or him being the last person on earth because he doesn't know that yet. But more th- more like panic of waiting for what you want, and because you're so used to just walking somewhere and immediately being served and immediately being taken care of. That when it takes ten minutes, you just jump the counter because there's panic about that. Mm. You're like, oh, the world isn't working in a way that I'm used to it working. Like that's that really leads to him realizing that he's alone because the world isn't catering to him mm. in a way that it would normally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty true because he goes to the different shops and there's no one there and he realizes mm. that oh there really isn't anyone there and also because he is uh, going to the phone booth and then the operator is just recording yeah. so the wider world doesn't seem to exist but that could also be like well I wrote kind of related to another thing that I wrote down which was why doesn't he know who he is mm. and I wondered if there's something about human identity being created in relation to other human beings. Mm. So, because there's no other, there's no other people around, he doesn't know who he is. Like, I'm not saying that if, you know, you're put into a, uh, put into an um, empty room and then just left there that you immediately snap and you <laughs> don't know who you are. I mean, like, in the as a metaphor, kind yeah. of. And the way he pieces together parts of his identity is through these larger systems, like money and air force. These yeah. are signs of identity. Yeah, like, what do you belong to? Like, the, mm-hmm. the air force one is pretty central also to him being american because being in the air force is a very american pursuit obviously Mm. um it's very related to him being clearly like a patriotic person Mm. and so that's a huge part of who he is in relation to uh the other people who are in the air force and so i guess he i mean he's happy about that that he finds that out but then he immediately thinks that there's been like uh, a bomb or something yeah but then he also realizes that that's probably not the case because all the buildings are there yeah then again if it was a neutron bomb then Mm. could be but then there would be bodies yeah but it's like oh i'm in the air force so there must be a war and that's why there's nobody here Mm. um and i'm a part of this war for for my country or something like that hmm yeah so, oh yeah, there were a couple of other interesting bits. Like, he talks to himself a lot. We can agree on that. Oh, for sure. He just narrates Constantly. everything he does. <laughs> like, 
takes I... him like 20 minutes to start talking to himself in the mirror. He just snaps so immediately when he mm-hmm. realizes he's alone. Yeah, and he just... It's not so bad that it reminds me of... I don't quite... It's a audio drama that's made to be like like really, really bad. Right. Like... Uh, this gun in my right hand is loaded. <laughs> it has that kind of lines. That might be act- the actual <laughs> name of the audio. But it's not but we quite know, that. buddy. We can see. Yeah. So it's not quite that bad, but Rod Serling really didn't like it. And, right, yeah. Uh, he made a lot of changes and there was some kind of new release later where it was like done a bit better. No, he... There was a written version mm. where it was done a bit better. Right, right, right. And of course, in a written version, you can have more internal thoughts. Mm. Then again, you can indicate internal thoughts in visual medium as well, like how he looks at stuff and that kind of things. Yeah. But it might have not been that interesting. And because this was the pilot, you kind of have to like hammer everything like down like you so that you don't have to think too much about it because apparently this show was very different from anything that was on tv yeah maybe it's one of those things where it's like well we don't know if people are gonna get this or like this if it's too experimental or too you know boring Mm. in a way if there's not constant noise yeah and i um i think it, it it's a good pilot it's a, yeah. it's a good pilot. Um, there's also some other kind of weird things like he just, um, like at one point he just finds a lit cigar and starts yeah, smoking yeah. it himself. Oh, yeah, it does. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what her piece is. <laughs> Rather than looking around, I think he does look around a little bit to see if anyone's still there because it is an indication that someone's just been there um that happens a lot of times anyway but rather than look for them just takes it and smokes it and sort of sits down um which is an interesting reaction yeah to then he goes around life. With it for quite a long yeah, time yeah he does yeah i mean what else is there to do i guess yeah and uh i know that it's a delusion so this makes sense in that way but there's when he is at the shop, like a bookshop or something, there's a The Last Man on Earth Almanac or Journal or whatever. Yeah. Uh, February 1959 <laughs> issue. And uh, I'm just wondering, is there a whole series <laughs> of this? What's in The Last Man on Earth Journal? <laughs> what would be the th- stuff? Yeah, that? is it a biannual journal? Is it like a monthly Well, it says journal? that it's a February issue, so it oh, sounds yeah, like it's right. a monthly, monthly one. issue, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly be in that magazine? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's such a good point. Like, who's writing it? <laughs> the last man himself, or... AI. AI. AI is writing it. Mm-hmm. Yep. The early version. Very early version. Yeah. So it's just nonsense. This is like a really boxy designed robot that's just like people, people with with their claw hands, obviously. (laughs) That's a very important job. When you're last man on earth, you just make a robot to write books for you and magazines. First thing you do. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you need entertainment in this hellscape moon Mm -hmm. landing simulation that you're in. 
Yep. So, yeah, that's my take on it. Do you have anything else? Uh, well, I was thinking about the moon landing actually a lot, not that I mentioned it. Um, mm. Because before this episode came out in uh, October 59, uh, literally a month before that, the uh, Russians landed the first thing on the moon. I'm not sure what it was exactly. But um, so when they were making this episode and writing it, I imagine that it was about to happen or, you know, I mean, the space race was going on, obviously. So Mm. it was a big thing in the minds of everyone who would be watching this. And there's a lot of panic about, you know, the space race and the Cold War and what's happening. And so I think um... the moon landing uh, and going to the moon is like a very scary thing even that's going on so it makes sense to make this kind of horror about it well yeah and you're going there alone apparently because you know you you just gotta go alone i guess right and it's terrifying just going to space like for not the first time but going so far and just being there and it's yeah so it makes sense at this time to be making this kind of stuff yeah, and there was, of course, when there's space race stuff, then it's not just a space race. That's a, It's not just like, oh, they're ahead of us in a scientific discovery, mm. because space race has a lot to do with uh, rocket and therefore missile development. Yeah, of course, uh, it's development. Like so they're going to either go to the moon and or nuke us. Like, that's yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah, be- I don't think ICBMs... Um, Intercontinental ballistic ballistic (laughs) missiles. Yeah, ballistic intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, Uh, those weren't a thing yet. I think right might not be like I think they came in the sixties. Maybe yeah, but I mean, threat was there. I suppose. Hmm. The threat was there. I suppose. Yeah, and. Basically, everyone knew that that was coming at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I suppose, unless you have any more, that's our thing about the first episode of The Twilight Zone. Yes. Clearly, a queer analogy. <laughs> queer and American. Queer American, mm. one might say. Yeah. But yes, we'll, unless you have something to say, we'll go on. To the next episode. Yes, let's go. I just never will understand you people. You get the idiotic notion that life goes on forever, and of course it doesn't. Episode two of the Twilight Zone is called One for the Angels. Lou Bookman is a pitchman by profession, as the opening narration tells us. The episode itself opens on him in two telling scenarios. First, he's on the side of the street with his briefcase full of wares, talking to some neighborhood children about the toys he's selling. Next up, we see him alone at home in his apartment, humming to himself happily, watering his flowers. So it's very clear what image is shown of this guy. Very jolly, very happy, good with children, just an overall nice man. All of a sudden, he turns around and there's Mr. Death at the corner of his room, sitting in a chair. Death is a middle-aged white man in a black suit and he tells Lou that he's going to die at midnight. Lou appeals his own death very bureaucratically by saying that he wants to make one last big pitch, one for the angels, before he dies. Uh, However, it soon becomes clear that Lou starts delaying his big pitch so he won't die, ever. 
He tells Death, you'll never catch me making a pitch again. Soon, the little girl who was talking to him at the beginning of the episode gets hit by a car, and the doctor in turn gives her until midnight to live to see if she'll improve, and Lou sets his sights on not letting Death into her room. Before midnight, he starts setting up a pitch for Death at the side of the road. He starts selling thread and ties, basically, by wildly exaggerating and making up stories about them. At 5 to 12, Death buys all of his stuff. He's so mesmerized that he misses his appointment with the little girl. And the last thing that Lou sells is himself as a right-hand man. And the episode ends by him and Death going up there, Lou with his briefcase in hand. He's now accepted Death, and the message seems to be that he sacrificed himself for this little girl, while also just realizing that it's his time to go. Interesting episode for a second episode. Very different from the first one. Yeah, I liked this episode a lot. I liked it too. It was sweet. uh, It made me smile at the end there. It was a very sort of nice ending to it. Yeah, I showed it to one of our friends and they liked it as well. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It was Uh, Yeah. I'll that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I liked uh, Edwin as as the actor of of Lou. He's like a sweet guy. Mm. Sort of like a nice, nice man who they, I think, chose for this role. Because he, he, I mean, he wasn't like a typical pitch man, apparently. They wanted somebody who was fast at talking and sort of like a salesman type of guy, but they landed on him just because he's nice. Like, he seemed like a nice man, and that was more important than having like a fast talker guy, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, he doesn't really fast talk. He no. just talks a lot and very grand. <laughs> yeah. Sort of slowly, even. But yeah. he, he has this... Gravitas. Yeah, exactly. He has this charisma, this like happiness about him, I guess. I was thinking about this episode more in a couple of themes. The first one would be success and success as the meaning of life in particular. Um, Because Lou is not very successful, uh, nor does he want to be uh, at his job. The opening narration mentions that he is a rather minor component to a hot July, a nondescript, commonplace little man whose life is a treadmill built out of sidewalks. So nothing special, not that successful, mm-hmm. at the to the point of major notoriety. And we also see that he lives alone, he doesn't have a family, so that sort of plays into him being seen as not successful or very special in life. Um, he doesn't have a lot of things. But he seems very happy despite all of this, Mm. um, and that's important. But where the success is a meaning of life comes in is uh, the first thing that he can think of when death is wondering uh, what could save him. And the third thing that he has is um, business that you still have to do. He immediately only thinks of his job. He's like, well, I guess one thing that I could still do is be great at my job and make one like huge pitch and sell a lot of stuff even though it's not really what he wants clearly because he starts delaying it yeah i think that he it's kind of a dream that he's had like an actual dream but then he you he doesn't really believe that he could actually achieve it so he can just like throw it out there and death will be like oh yeah sure (laughs) yeah it doesn't really think that much of himself, I guess, is also the thing. Yeah. So he values living more than success, 
so that's why he starts cheating death by just not doing it ever. Mm. Um, but the thing is that it doesn't fly. You still have to do things to live, I guess, in your job. And so yeah. that's what this uh, death character sort of personifies. You can't just not do anything ever. Um, yeah, your I, life depends on it. Yeah, and I think that the reason why he make, tries to make this deal is that he... Uh, it's not so much that he, like, in general, wants to, like, live forever or anything, but he's faced with literal death. Yeah. So then you'll do whatever you have to do in that moment. He ju- He's not thinking about the repercussions. He's just going, bam, I want to live because I'm... Otherwise, I will die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't deal with only career success in a way, but also family success, like I said. I mean, Lou has lived alone. Uh, he mentions for 20 years, over 20 years in his little apartment. Um, so what does that mean? What's the... Why not Why not giving him a family or a past family even? Like, it's clear that he has always lived alone and he's this kind of bachelor guy who only cares about his um, job to a point, but also just making people happy, like the kids mm. in his neighborhood and people around him. Like, what do you think is the reason to not give this guy a family in this episode. Yes. And to our um, American listeners who might have forgotten their own history, this was before Stranger Danger. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, no, that's really the kids are just the kids parents are just like, "Oh yeah, Lou. Yeah, that's fine." Just... Yeah, just a confirmed bachelor of our like community. Yeah, you can take toys yeah. and candy from that guy. It's totally fine. Yeah, and in a way that's really cool because yeah, now now if this was made, I do wonder if there would be a kind of hint or if unintentional hint of like mm. stranger danger going on. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, but it's clearly not what the episode yeah. at all is thinking about. He's very mm-hmm. belev- benevolent presence in in everyone's lives he's just a nice man who's selling toys which like obviously yeah but the world is so fucked up especially now that we're like yeah and when stranger stranger danger came along like in the 80s or something yeah it wasn't yet yeah yeah so after that like u.s culture has never been the same oh yeah but he he there is a certain, like, because this is my quote-unquote field of expertise, there is a, a certain kind of queerness to living life like that. Like, just not going by the rules of society, of just, like, I'm not... I don't have any family or anything like that. Although he does seem sad. Yeah. When it said... Mm. Uh, that, or when uh, Death points it out that he's... Yeah, he does. It, it's especially, I mean, even still now, but especially in the 50s, I feel like people took such pity on you or they think that something was wrong with you uh, if you were just living alone and didn't have, you know, a wife and kids and a successful job. Like, he doesn't have, like, a really successful job. I mean, he's to be working for himself and doing all this kind of relaxed 
stuff. Exemplifying really the American entrepreneurial yeah. spirit. So he's a very strange character in that way. He would be seen as a kind of outcast. Yeah, I'm actually wondering, uh, because there's going to be at least one other episode later, uh, one of the ones that I've seen, um, might be more, but there's another episode where a pitch man is very central to the plot. Right, right. And I'm kind of wondering, was there some kind of romanticism about pitch men? Mm. Because, well, you do kind of get pitchmen in a certain way yeah. these days but um not really a job in that capacity that you're on the street you know selling ties but it, yeah it you're is... kind of selling uh, stuff that like just knickknacks that you might need every day like yeah. bread or that kind of stuff just little little things hmm. and i'm kind of wondering what kind of how were these people viewed were they like because in the other one as well it's an old man. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it's like, this is something, this is a job that you have because you can't do anything else, get any other kind of job. Yeah. So that might be something that we should look into. Yeah, for but sure. Yeah. It's interesting that in the first season, there's like at least two episodes about oh the other ones in this season yeah. as well yeah we gotta yeah. keep an eye on that to think about if there's any similarities between the two people yeah i think that looking at what kind of place pitchmen had in society and also in the popular consciousness might be an interesting thing mm. to look at in uh, about the 50s yeah for sure another thing here about his sort of life achievements that I was thinking about uh, and that he would choose this as his defining achievement in the eyes of death and God and everybody uh, is when you've achieved everything that you want then what's the point of staying alive uh, also not really an accident that it has to do with his job and selling and productivity and doing your next big thing so his life there literally depends on his next big career move and so does the life of the girl really like him having death by all of his shit is directly correlating to her staying alive so it's really like uh death could take either one of them they're both just whatever to this guy mm. yeah i'm actually wondering about the whole i feel like i'm talking more in your analysis section than you are but you know <laughs> i talk a lot uh, uh but there's the aspect of uh, kind of an aspect of an old man exchanging his life for the life of a little girl mm. uh, so I'm wondering if there's some kind of like old generation <clears throat> versus uh, young generation and I did think for a while that maybe there's like an old generation trying to stay alive any way they can but then again Lou doesn't really seem like that he's not the kind mm. of archetype that we associate with that kind of narrative like he's not greedy or anything he's just faced with death and he's like well I don't want that who would who yeah, else would no. like when the death comes and you know you're going to die yeah I mean the thing also is like 
why haven't you done this stuff earlier? If you're so panicked about dying that you have so much stuff left to do, then why haven't you just done it? Or why aren't you doing it?、Mm-hmm. Um, and also, he doesn't. Because he's a puller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,、um, and he doesn't really maybe see that he has something to die for before he realizes that the little girl is going to die, because he, you know, doesn't have. A family that's being threatened, or some aspect of him that's,、uh, you know, being being threatened. Before this little girl is starting to die, he doesn't really see anything worth sacrificing himself for or dying for.、Mm. Um, and in that way, it's really accepting your death because other people, younger people, have to start doing the shit that you're doing, and you just have to kind of live with it. Yeah, I mean, aging is a is a very common theme in the Twilight Zone in general. Not even dying, just aging and the really really scary aspect of not you know being a part of the world anymore in the same way that younger people are.、Mm. Being alone, being irrelevant, not you know no one respecting you, or you're not doing anything important, and you just the next big thing for you is to basically die. So he's. Kind of Are you sure that. that this isn't just you talking about <laughs> your career as a teacher? Maybe a little bit being with teenagers all the times. Just definitely, <laughs> maybe making me think that I don't know what words mean anymore, more than anything. But I want to point out that I am five years older than Eri, <laughs> so you know. Yeah, but you know, there's that kind of. There's that kind of gap, which I can't even imagine. If I was what is Lou like, sixty, I can't like imagine what the gap is between him and the girl who's like eight. Like he doesn't know、mm. what she's saying. He's going senile. She's saying all these, all these words that he doesn't understand anymore. It's yes, scary. Yes,、so、when she's just going about pogs and riz. Yeah, exactly. I know what riz actually means, but、yeah. you know, I know that that's the new. Would that you know? Yeah, this little girl's coming up to him like, "Hey, it's the Riz King." It's like, "What do you mean? I don't understand. I'm、yeah. so alone." Yes, Riz King. Yeah, that's something one, I've heard one my students le- say. Actually, one letter away from Jizz King. <laughs> that's、uh, now that I would understand more than more than the other thing. Um, um, I've heard that it's a like. Okay, one one thing why I probably haven't heard about Riz as a term a lot is because it apparently has kind of a straight. Yeah,、meaning. yeah, for sure. I think I saw it in like、um, in in another whole word salad. It was like a TikTok of this two people I don't know,、uh, and people were making fun of the word salad. So it was like, oh, this guy is rizzing her up. She's. Up there doing some cheerleading stuff, and I'm like, what are you fucking talking about?、Mm. Yeah, I'm just like, well, we got so far from the pickup artist craze <laughs> of like, I mean, good of the last decade, but here we are. <laughs> here we fucking are. Anyhow, old people talking about young people section over. Yes, over. We we are. 
linguists we know. <laughs> no, it's language great. Goes, it's, language it's goes great. on and it's actually interesting to look at. Yes, like, it's amazing. And especially most language stuff has been invented by young women, especially. That's the way the whole world moves forward in terms of language. I have nothing honestly, against, you know, teenagers. Okay, I just, I, I, I'm just, I just don't understand what anyone is saying anymore and that makes me uh, sad. I thought that most of the new words in English are basically just like uh, from African-American culture. Yeah, that too, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Anyhow, go on. Yes. <laughs> on with the show. I think I was talking about how both Lou and the little girl are sort of products also in the eyes of death. I mean, Lou sort of sells himself at the end to death uh, as like a last product. It's like, oh, I'll be your right-hand man or whatever he says. He's he's the final product in the arsenal that mm. he's selling there, which is which is interesting. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting, like, hmm... I'm not getting a very coherent thought, but you'll probably have those. <laughs> Do I? Well, if we don't, we'll cut it out, cut this part out and yeah. just make it seem like you already had like a thesis ready. Yeah, what do you mean this isn't live? <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely leaving that in, by the way. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you? Less work for me, actually, so, you know. <laughs> just keep everything, just all the waffle, just all of the waffle in. Great yeah. audio. I mean, obviously. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when you think about American culture, like, is there an aspect of, like, you basically sell yourself to your job, and now that you've completed it, mm. I did air quotes there. Um, completed life. Yeah, you've you completed your job that yeah. you sold yourself to, and mm. uh, now you're selling yourself to death. Yeah, which is, that's another thing, that you think there's a way to finish working, or to finish doing the job that you're doing. Like, it's always climbing up and up, and there's this idea that you can actually do it, or like, finish it. There's one last thing that you can do. Which is absolutely not true, even in this case, mm. even though it seems to be the case. Like, you could always do more, and if Lou had that kind of spirit, then I don't think that would be enough for him. He wouldn't be ready to die if he wasn't happy with just selling all his stuff to one guy. But he, he is very happy about that, because yeah. that is his, you know, level of success that he wants. But if it was another person, if it was like a... CEO character who has to, you know, do more and constantly, like, I don't think he'd ever be ready to die, and then mm. this little girl would die, I think, if this was another character. Yeah, I wonder if we're gonna have that kind of uh, stories later yeah. in the series. But I wondered and wanted to ask you, do you think that death is actually, and I just in general want to talk about the death in this episode. Yeah. Does death actually buy the things because he wants to buy them or because he knows what 
uh, Lou is doing. That is trying yeah. to save the little girl. Also, my hands were in front of my face, so you know, if you couldn't hear me <laughs> just now, that's that. That would be the thing. I did a bad. <laughs> yeah, if he's just faking it because he's nice and he just wants to get it over with, he's not mm. like a malicious. Yeah, I mean the uh, image I get of death from the beginning is that he's just another guy at work. Mm. He's checking stuff off a notebook. He's speaking in very bureaucratic language. Um, you know, there's things that you can appeal and whatever. He doesn't even look him in the eyes. He's just doing a job. Um, but uh, he's very human in a way that death often is portrayed. He's just a guy, which in these instances means average-looking white guy, because that's just definition of a person. So that makes him human in like a base level kind of way which also makes death very mundane because uh, he is mm. just a guy who's taking you where you need to be so you don't yeah. have to be alone it's it's very sweet when you think about it um, so yeah I, I do think that he's uh, faking it a little bit another production note that I read in the companion was that um, th- that relates to what I was saying earlier about Lou's actor that he's not a very good salesman he's not very convincing and at no point of the production did they think that he was convincing because I, I don't really agree with that I mean he's fine but uh, he's entertaining yeah for sure but because they did not get somebody who was like a fast talker guy and like a very I don't know career-oriented person that they, they had to make it a little bit unconvincing because um, mm. he the actor couldn't get over it apparently is what it said <laughs> he just couldn't do it right which is a little bit mean Aww. but uh, <laughs> I think he's, he was fine so in that way yeah I feel like by that logic he'd have to be just nice be like, oh, you've convinced me, I'll buy all of your stuff. With what? With the money I don't have? Yeah, that's what I thought myself for most of the episode, but then he goes like, uh, death goes and says, like when it strikes midnight, he's shocked. Mm. And I'm like, why are you shocked? Yeah, is he just acting or is he actually shocked that it's midnight? Yeah, or is it like they they made the episode at first like he was supposed to be in on the joke, but then mm. just like... Yeah. Because at some point he's just like, he has this bag, Death has uh, this bag, and he just goes, just give me everything you've got. <laughs> and they start to shoving the stuff. So it, st- it really seems that he's just like he's... He is in on the joke, yeah. but then he goes and he's shocked that he missed his appointment with the little girl. Mm. Yeah, it has, might have something to do with the fact that the first time they were writing this, it was supposed to be like a whole group of people mm. would gather for his last big pitch, but here it's just death. I'm not, I'm not sure what happened there, that they couldn't get a lot of people to look at his pitch there but it would have been a very different thing if like a lot of people were very impressed and were just buying all of his stuff yeah maybe it did have something to do with believability Mm. which i think they're still being mean to this actor guy (laughs) like oh (laughs) 
there's no way that you'll be convincing a whole street of people to buy your shit. Like, yeah, let's just have this be this one guy who was also in on the joke and is trying to have you die mm. in the next ten minutes. Yeah. Just dunking on this actor. I'm sure he doesn't mind. Yeah. Oh, well. He got paid. Yeah. Also, he's dead. So. Mm. Most certainly. Yeah. Unless he's the oldest man alive. Do we have anything else about this episode? Uh, be just some finishing notes. Like I said, I thought it was very sweet at the end there. I Both of the actors were great. Um, and it's just, at the end of the day, it's just like a nice story about accepting death and being like, oh, well, it's my time to go and I don't have to go alone. And there's this nice, uh, silly guy next to me who's gonna give me a job in heaven apparently Mm. Um, so it's not very it's not in the usual twilight zone style where there's like this huge life shattering twist (laughs) twist at the end it's just a nice story oh as rod serling called them snappers a snapper there's Mm. not a snapper in this story not to be confused with snapple register (laughs) trademark yeah damn i love snapple I've never had it. What? Do we sell that? Yes. Oh, I didn't know we sold that. Real expensive, though. Oh, yeah, for oh. sure. Just apple juice, no? Yeah, but it's good. Mm. It's good. Yeah. And it has little wisdom in the, like... Oh, yeah. So it is like a Twilight Zone episode, in a way. You twist the top and there's like a wisdom in there, so it is a Snapple. There's no Snapple in this episode. It's just wisdom in general, is what I'm saying. Snapple, TM, 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 TM. Not sponsored. Not sponsored, no. But yeah, I couldn't turn this episode into a queer thing, so, you know. No, it's just also very American, is what I'm always looking for. I mean, obviously the show is American, but it's American. There's degrees of Americanness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if that's everything about that episode, that brings us to the close of our episode. Oh, yes. If you want to find us, get some more of this very, very nice stuff, you can go to That's Not Fair Pod on Instagram and Tumblr. And you should also, obviously, uh, follow, subscribe. What do people subscribe I guess. Yeah. That's Subscribe, yeah. like, you know, do those things, leave a review, and preferably a five-star one, and maybe we'll deign to notice it and read <laughs> it aloud on the show sometime. Mm. But yes, we'll see you in the next episode, and I'm gonna head out to a Christmas party, ah, or as yes. we in Finland call them, Little Christmas. A Little Christmas. Indeed. And what will you be doing? I will be walking a lot in minus 10 degree weather. So hopefully I won't die. Right, right. Um, (laughs) But we'll end it here. And until we meet again in the Twilight Zone.